Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for joining in. My guest this week is Preeti Kardaliwa. Preeti is an author. She's also a lawyer. We have a great conversation, a lot about story and uh, law. It was a really, really fruitful conversation. I hope you enjoy. Please check me out on social media. You guys know all the places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm at Newer Kidwai and uh, Newer Kidwai Comedian on Facebook. So please check me out. And I got some more comedy dates coming up uh, now that uh, comedy starting to uh, come back in. So uh, I'll be advertising that as well. But uh, yeah, I hope you guys can please subscribe to the podcast, give it a good rating, all of that really helps, and I hope you guys are enjoying all these episodes, and I'm going to keep bringing you new and interesting guests as long as I can, but let's get into this uh, week's episode. My guest, Preeti Kar Daliwa. Welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. Today we got Preeti Kar Daliwa. Preeti, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is going to be fun, Preeti. Um, so you just uh, you just finished your thesis. Uh, we'll go. I'll give you a little background in the intro of uh, kind of your whole schooling and everything. But uh, let's just talk about this. You just finished your thesis, which is your first uh, novel. Um, yeah, maybe you can tell us how long did it uh, take you, and like, what does it feel like now that it's like all this time's done and you finished it all up. Wow. <laughs> Big question. How long did it take? I mean, I started this master's in 2018, but the piece that I was actually working with, I wrote, I started, I wrote that when I was 21 or 22 during a theater workshop. And in order to get into the theater workshop, you had to write the story of your life as touch has given you life. You were supposed to spend between one and three hours on it. And so I was sourcing that all week. And then I sat down at the computer, wrote seven or eight pages went to this theater workshop that was looking at a lot of different methods, but basically at impulse work. And the theater instructor came up to me and said, you're a writer, aren't you? <laughs> and I was 22. I was like, oh, good. I guess I am. <laughs> uh, left the piece in a drawer for about eight years and then went to a writing residency in Miami with Chris Abani, showed him the piece. He said it would be a novella and then put it back in a drawer for two years until this master's and finally worked on it intensively and turned it into a fictional novel. And yeah, that's where I'm at now. Oh, <laughs> so it started as something autobiographical, but then it became a work of fiction by the end because the seven pages that I started with were just a framework. So uh, why did you uh, decide to uh, bring this into your like master's like, or into your thesis when you had a cho choice to like work on something as, as your thesis? What made you bring this? When I took it to Chris Abani, it was actually really interesting. I was supposed to be working with a South Asian woman for that writing residency. And so I was going to work on a completely different project, which was a set of monologues based on a set of interviews that I had done with South Asian women. She got into a car accident and wasn't able to make it. She was okay, thank goodness. And Chris Abani showed up and I asked him what I could bring that would be different because he didn't feel like the right person to work on that particular piece with. And when he read this, and he said it was going to be a novella, I believed him. And he said that this work would bring many people back from a dark night. And that stuck with me for three years and inspired me to write a novel out of it. 
Oh, that's uh, no, that's very beautiful. Bringing up people back from a dark night. That's uh, pretty much what you want, uh, kind of with stories and everything. Um, so you said uh, in when you were twenty-two, and uh, they gave you what was the theme again? Something about touch. The story of your life as touch has given you life. As touch has given you life, and then okay, so how did that uh, kind of translate into like the story you wrote? Yeah, so the piece that I wrote when I was twenty-two. I was looking at all the different touches that I had during the week, including brushing by a stranger on the subway or somebody that I might have been in a relationship with or past relationships. There's all these different forms of touch that we have, right? And also family and how we're trained to touch and not to touch. And so I was looking a lot at culture as well. And like South Asian culture, or amongst my family at least, there isn't a wild amount of affection between partners and things like that in a public space. Um, so I was thinking about how all of that lands in the body. And also how I embodied it, how I was around white people, how I was around people of color, how it felt different when men touched me, how it felt different when women touched me. Um, and so I wanted to explore that more deeply in the novel. So in the novel, it ends up being about a young South Asian woman who grew up in Surrey. And it explores her family dynamics as a child. And there's a lot of childhood instability. And then it moves, that's the beginning, sorry, the first third of the novel. And then in the middle, I'm looking at her romantic relationships. So again, just exploring touch in a romantic way rather than a familial way. And then in the end, it comes back to her family dynamics and her mother is sick, but it's looking at most of this through touch, which I didn't realize it was going to. I mean, it, touch is probably more central in the middle, but it does carry as a theme throughout and how we receive touch differently depending on where we're at in life as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. No, that's, uh, that sounds uh, pretty cool. I like that. So and it's also grief and intergenerational trauma and all these different things, right? Because all of that comes into how we, how our bodies receive from certain people and interact around certain people. Yeah, I bet. Like, uh, if you're going to touch, like, if people with trauma, like, it's sometimes it's, like, a lot harder for them to, like, actually touch properly or even, like, receive, right? Yeah, I mean, and it depends on what kinds of trauma we all hold and historical drama as well that's just inherited into our bodies, ways that our parents might have been around us or with us. Or even like stories that we're receiving from the outside world and how that impacts our interactions with one another. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So one thing, like I, I, I'm always interested in, in the creative process and uh, my creative process is like almost, uh, I think it's a little bit different than yours because I'm always like going into comedy. So like I try to get into like uh, maybe a little bit of a shit talking mood and start writing some comedy. <laughs> Uh, but uh, for you, um, like, you're writing some deep stuff here, and you're, like, actually, like you were talking about, you're talking about trauma, you're talking about pain. So, like, can you, like, give us a little bit of an insight into, like, uh, what is it like when you're writing this, um, like, when you're writing a novel and you have to constantly come back to it, but you have to constantly bring up these, like, traumas and pains from your past? Yeah, I mean, I think because I ended up writing a fictional novel, it's not necessarily from my past, but I am mining my body for certain emotions and responses and from stories that I've heard and absorbed somehow myself. It's difficult. I mean, especially during quarantine, I think a lot of people said it would be easier for writers to write because you're alone and you're isolated. And I'm like, well, it's actually difficult when you're holding heavy materials to be alone all the time and not have the comfort of seeing a friend at the end of the day or being held by someone you love or someone you care about at the end of the day. Um, I think for me, because I had a lot of different fragments, so the novel is told in fragments and it's nonlinear, I could choose to work with certain ones on certain days. And I'd often 
put off writing about more difficult things until I knew that there was a day where I could hold that and I would have something to look forward to or to hold me at the end of the day. Um, and sometimes it's just sad and I sit with my work and I cry and that's okay too. Like I know there was a day, I think I was talking to you about it actually, where a character dies and I grieve my characters when they pass. I'm like, I'm gonna go for a long walk in the park and I spent a lot of time with the trees because all I had was nature because I was living all alone. Um, so I just, yeah, I let myself feel through it. That's good. Uh, that's so cool too. Like, uh, like writing a novel, like, so do you not know like a character is going to die? Do you have to kind of feel the story like through the, went through your writing process? I think it's really different for different people. So some people walk in with an outline and for me, I don't walk in knowing the entire story. For me, the exciting part is learning and seeing where the story takes me. I think I've told you a bit about the crow and the sparrow. So there's a folk tale in this novel about a crow and a sparrow, and it's a Punjabi folk tale. Uh, I don't know if I need to tell the whole thing <laughs> right now, but uh, essentially that became a place, the folk tale was a place of lightness for me while I was writing. So if everything was really heavy, even though there's some dark scenes in the folk tale itself, being able to interact with the animals let me pull back from the weight of the actual story. And even when my supervisors and mentors were reading it, they felt that same lightness when they were reading that part. Um, yeah. I think that's, uh, yeah, it's probably good for the reader as well. Um, Cause like, yeah. I, I do like, uh, when I love, uh, when I read, I love reading heavy material. Like a lot of the books I read are about like <laughs> horrible tragedies, but like, um, it is nice to like toss in a little bit of that lightness in between and kind of, uh, yeah, you know, like gives you, uh, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> you have to care for your reader. Like when I was doing my other masters, I would, there's ways that you can use blank space on the page to give your readers a bit of comfort. So even if you look at poetry and the way it takes up space on the page, sometimes there'll be a lot crammed on one page and you get a particular feeling from reading a page that has words crammed all across it and heavy material. Whereas on the next page, you might get just one word and you, you literally can take a breath when you have a bit more space or white space on the page. And so even how I arranged fragments next to one another or what scene, because it is fragmented, what scene comes after which scene, in doing that, I'm taking care of myself, but I'm also looking out for my reader because I don't want them to feel, I want them to feel the weight of what I'm writing, but I don't want to bury them in it. And I don't want to write, Vivek Shraya, an amazing writer, talks a lot about trauma porn and made a whole piece around it. I think there's a photo series about a trauma clown, but a lot of the time publishers are coming to people of color and BIPOC folks for a traumatic or tragic story because that's what sells. And so I think there's a fine line between sharing a particular reality, but also being seen as a complex and full human that's not only trauma, because mm. those are a lot of the stories that we end up getting these days. Historically, white people were writing all of the stories. Now there's more BIPOC writers, but publishers for a period of time were going after a particular story that pulled an emotional response in a certain way. And so we have to be careful when we're writing about trauma and difficult subjects to also show the complexity of every character and the nuances and the everyday lives and things that people of color are doing or differently marginalized people are doing. That's crazy. Uh, you know, like in comedy, I kind of sometimes feel the same thing. Um, I know like sometimes when you're like dealing with like uh, 
higher ups who are trying to do some sort of uh, production like they kind of want when they see a person of color and like I've, I felt this myself they want you to kind of be talking about certain things and a lot of times they want you to be kind of victimizing yourself and like kind of put like sharing your story in that way and I always kind of like fought back against that just because I, I like I, I don't like it I don't know why something about it bugs me inside I don't even really know what it is but um, it is one of those things too it's like can't we show the complexity of ourselves like a lot of my material I do have race stuff but I have a lot of stuff like I talk about the world and like shit I care about like that's the stuff I'm like more passionate about and it's just like I, I would rather like be known as like uh the guy who can like talk about the world rather than like the brown <laughs> comedian who you know like talks about being brown right <laughs> Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's being seen as a full human. There's like intersectionalities, but also I imagine what you're referring to, it's, I guess in sociology or whatever academic realm it is talking about the white gaze. So the way we're looked at and the way they want to see us. And so when someone's asking you to do just the racial comedy bit, that is for, it's a performance for the white gaze. G-A-Z-E. I've never heard that term. Yeah. There's also the male gaze. So it's kind of looking at a person through just one light as an object in some way, as you are only this. And so how do we not perform for that particular gaze and actually tell the story that we want to tell? And so if you look at writers like Toni Morrison, she has like she paved the path for so many BIPOC folks to do that. And James Baldwin, a lot of black writers in the States, this is what they they created that path for writers to be able to do that afterwards. So it's I, because like they they shared their story like just completely unapologetically is what you're saying? Yeah, a lot of that. And like James Baldwin has essays on race that also explain the complex, like how we're seen and how we respond. And there's also writers like Edward Said who writes about Orientalism. So I think a lot of this I've started turning my eye to very young. I mean, as a racialized person, I think we're always aware of how white people see us. Um, there is from a young age, I, I my mother always tells me this story of you know, when you were three years old, we were getting out of the car and we were going into this park, Bear Creek Park, which was mostly Punjabi people walking around at the time, I would think, but maybe not. And I said to her, mom, don't speak Punjabi when you get out of the car. And so as a three-year-old, I already internalized what it meant to be Punjabi and not completely understood that, you know, my skin is going to give that away. But how do I be more like that? You know, when yeah. you you see things that make you feel like less. And as racialized people or like BIPOC folks, you, you internalize that when you're young. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. You know, I, I actually kind of like that just brought, brought up a story in my head. I remember when I was like young and in school, like uh, when people would be like, so what do you eat at home? And I would always just be like, because I, I ate curries and like stuff like my mom made, but I don't know, I, I eat hot dogs, I eat hamburger. <laughs> like I just always like be like, that's what I eat. What are you talking about? The same stuff as you guys. Like I was just trying yeah. to like fit in and like, it's true. I would like kind of say the same stuff like, hey, don't... uh don't be talking that language around it like you're embarrassing me and like kind of shit like that so yeah we do we do feel it even though we don't really know what like we're too young to really know what the hell's happening right yeah well it's internalizing the racism we internalize the stories that we hear and the stories that we see around us we can't help but do that even as adults we still do that with respect to our bodies and the way we're supposed to look and all these where we're supposed to be in life it all filters in somehow and so as children we don't usually have the critical lens to filter those things out. And even as adults, a lot of people aren't like, 
it's a lot of work every day to combat all of those stories that are being shoved into your body, your yeah. mind. Yeah, and like uh, yeah. even like race is just one aspect because like we do live in like a very consumeristic like um, society and like even like just doing all the work with meditations and psychedelics that I've done in the last few years, I've noticed how much of that consumerism mindset is just so ingrained in me just from fucking absorbing all the shit media for the last like uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> 32 years. Uh, like, do you notice that as well or? I didn't know that. <laughs> no, what? That you're younger than me. Oh, I'm actually you're 33. 32. I took a year off there. <laughs> like a <laughs> now we've both given it away. Sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Uh, dang, I don't know. Like, do you notice, like, with consumerism, it's kind of the same thing? It's just, like, they put, like, shit in your head that just kind of makes you, like, it's just in there. And to get rid of it, it, it takes work. It takes a wild amount of work. And also that, you know, even when we look at how those images are like what the media's idea is, I mean, their, their goal is to make you buy more shit. So the worse you feel about yourself, the more shit you buy. The more that's wrong with like, even when I look at makeup ads and stuff, I'm like, oh my God, they have makeup for everything. <laughs> I would never be able to absorb that. But there's certain targets to make people feel worse, right? And so that they'll, I don't know, that's just how it is. <laughs> There's like all the skin lightening creams, make sure your skin is perfect, make sure your hair is this color, make sure your body looks this way, like how, it's a wild amount of work to combat all of that. And when we look at the media, there's certain bodies that are seen at, or that are always on the screen. So I know for me growing up, there were way more white folks on TV. I think Netflix has more diversity now, mm. options, so you can choose what you're watching. But even as a kid, you internalize that. You watch TV and it's mostly white folks and they're supposed to look this way. And like, I can think back to when I did my first year of school in England and I was the only Punjabi person out of about 150 folks. There weren't that many BIPOC folks either. Uh, also, when I say BIPOC, I'm referring to black, indigenous and people of color. I think I'm explaining it. Um, oh, I thought you were talking about another way of saying Tupac, but all right. <laughs> um, yeah, like I think back, I was 17 when I went and the ways that I looked at myself in my own body because I wasn't surrounded by brown people, it really shifted. I used to work out for like an hour and a half every single day. And I just got so hyper vigilant about my own aesthetic because I felt like I wasn't enough. And I'm like, I think a lot of the time that's what the media and all of these images are doing. Mm -hmm. They want you to feel like not enough so that you buy more. And that's how capitalism thrives, which is a sad system <laughs> It exploits and it makes you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> it's true. But these iPhones are pretty nice, aren't they? <laughs> I don't have an iPhone. I have an Android. Oh, well, look at you. <laughs> look at you. All right. All right. Now, one thing, uh, like, I, I love talking about on my podcast is, like, self-discovery, self-transformation, like, making changes in our life. And you made one change that I've always admired you for. Like, so you started out as a lawyer, um, and then you decided to go and get your doctorate um, that you uh, just finished. Masters. Um, Master, sorry, my bad. Um, I mean, you can call me doctor. I, I'll call you. We'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, but like, uh, yeah, you went back to school and then you uh, decided to do this in like um, cr um, creative writing, and yeah. uh, you wrote your uh, you wrote a novel. 
So, like, that's, like, a huge, like, you started out as a lawyer, which is, like, such a, like, a prestigious job, good money, like, everyone probably looked up at you and, like, was just like, oh, you fucking made it, like, you don't have to do anything now, you're fucking done, but, like, you <laughs> made that switch, so, like, I, 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 like, I admire that so much, it's hard for people to make that, like, so I just want to kind of know, like, how you kind of discovered that you needed to make that switch and, like, how hard and like how much time did it take to actually do that? Yeah. I mean, when I look back at why I wanted to be a lawyer, I decided when I was five and it wasn't the typical immigrant parents who were pressuring their kid. It was none of that. It was this woman who lived down the street in the cul-de-sac. I often, after school, her parents would babysit me and I would stay in her room and she was never there. She was away at law school. And when she came back, she was so cool. She had like a purple pantsuit, <laughs> purple contacts, but she was also one of the first women I had seen who was, who seemed in control of her own life, who like wasn't in an abusive relationship, who wasn't attached to some man who she wasn't really, who she wasn't equal to at the time, right? And so I saw a strong woman and I was like, I want to be you when I grow up. And I didn't know what a lawyer meant. I didn't know what any of these things meant, but I just decided then and there. If I look at what actually kept me alive my entire life, it was the arts, it was theater, it was writing. I started writing a journal when I was five. I kept them, I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of them and also doing theater. And so there's one thing that was very nourishing, which was the arts and then law was something to focus on. It was a goal that I could keep moving towards. And part of it was having power. I mean, I'm born into a brown woman's body, so I don't exactly have power and I'm not treated the best when I walk into every space. It's really interesting these days when I suddenly slide in that I'm a lawyer, how differently people treat me. Mm. And I'm like, oh, and because normally I don't, it's not something that I want to talk about all the time or say, to, but in certain situations when someone's not treating me well, I do, I do say it. And then all of a sudden they treat me very differently. Um, so yeah, I did all that. I went to law school and, you know, it's interesting because you were saying you've made it. You know, people are going to look at you and they're going to, and there is the one, that's one part of it. I, I accomplished a goal, but I felt the worst I've ever felt in my life in law school. And I'm like, I've been through some shit in life. And school was always a sanctuary for me. Like, I loved school. <laughs> so to go there and feel absolutely terrible and then pursue it for another two years, knowing that it wasn't something that I could sustain internally, I, I knew that I needed to make a change. Um, part of not being able to stay in it is it's not logical. It's, it's colonial logic. It's very oppressive. It's very violent. And walking into a classroom and not having that at the forefront of discussions and also being in a really like male dominated area where for the first year, very few women would speak in class. And these are like top of their class women, like at the top of their classes, very outspoken women, all of us. And suddenly there was a silence in the classroom. And even the second years, I remember, came up to me in first year, I think two months in, and said, so how many times have you gone home bawling your eyes out? And I was like, fuck, this is a normal thing, that we go home bawling our eyes out. This is, that's terrible, because it's still a system that's designed for cis white men. That it's not for women like me to walk in. And you, I could feel that when I walked into spaces, that people might not know that my presence makes them uncomfortable, but it did at the time. And that was a constant throughout law school as well, where... There was really oppressive behavior, which is built into the system that we're learning. And people don't have an awareness of how their thinking is changing or even how they receive stories, like how that's changing. Because you're trained to suddenly 
take a story and split it into facts, issues, and holding. And when you start listening to other people, you start interpreting their stories that way as well. Your mind changes when you do something every single day, right? So if you start thinking in colonial logic, how do you defend yourself from that? And how do you, like, how could I think that way without thinking less of myself? So when, you, when you're saying, like, colonial logic, like, um, is that kind of like, like how lawyers think? Like, I don't know too much about lawyering, but... Uh... <laughs> Of great lawyers who are able to still be very human and emotional and see the problems with law and operate within it, right? So it's like sometimes, I mean, we're stuck within a system that oppresses us a lot of the time. It's not a totally just system. And there are changes and shifts. So some of the time, I mean, my public law classes, I loved a lot more. When I took constitutional law, there's problems, but there's more ways to, to look at them. Uh, and depending on who you're having those conversations with, um, when I'm saying colonial logic, what I'm talking about is that we have a common law system, which is passed here from the British. In Quebec, they have the civil law system, which is passed from France. They use the Quebec Civil Code. The rest of the country uses the common law. That's a colonial system. It came here with a very particular intention, and it's still the system that we use. It's still applied by a lot of people who still operate within that same way of thinking. When you look at diversity within the legal profession, it's there's been studies, at least in Ontario, looking at the dropout rates of racialized licensees. It's a lot higher because it is a painful space to be in for a lot of people. And the system is still the same, designed by and for cis white men. <laughs> there's like a human rights code and there's things that will protect people at this point in time. And it's, there's, a lot of comp there's a lot of litigation to protect people and change people's rights. But operating within it was too difficult for me. Yeah, is it? Do you like see any changes coming, or like any kind of positive like uh, way that you can? Do you look at that and say like maybe there's like a little bit of a bright side that we can get more uh, voices like coming into this space? I mean, yeah, I, there's there's been tons of changes in the law in the last hundred years. I think there was one judge at the Supreme Court who said if you look at the changes in other professions in the last hundred years, like doctors and things like that, you notice incredible change that was a lot more rapid but when you look at the legal system it changes a lot more slowly and it takes a lot of energy so if you're litigating for something I and mean, when you look at the changes even in aboriginal title and like indigenous land rights there's been shifts but it takes an incredible period of time and it's still like it has to operate within the system that itself is oppressive so it's and people do that work and i admire them for being able to do it for years and years I just don't think I was being of service in that space yeah. for me to be in that sort of conflict daily every single day and be surrounded by people where I didn't feel seen or valued fully as a human like as my full self I just couldn't do it for a long period of time no am uh, working 20 hour weeks not my jam <laughs> how, how many hours I think what I want to think when I want to think it and I couldn't do that there. And I'm like, for some people, I think also maybe it's simpler if you're a little bit less of a creative. Not If that's not core to who you are, it's probably an easier space to be in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But for me, so in my second year, sorry, were you going to ask a question? No, 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 go, go on. I was just going to say in my second year of law school, like at the end of my first year, I was really not happy. I was drinking way more than I normally would. I put on about 25 pounds. I smoked a little bit. And I'm like, that's not me either. Uh, 
And so I realized that if I was going to stay in this, I had to make a change. And I've been wanting to do this since I was five. So I was like, okay, you're going to go back to your like usual gym routine. You're not going to drink. I quit sugar because sugar, I have really high highs and then really low lows. I have a very unhealthy relationship with sugar. Um, and in second year, I started doing a theater minor and doing more embodied work. And I started doing a radio show and I started a women of color writing circle. And so it was really about developing spaces outside of law that were counter hegemonic. So when I say that, I mean like outside of the dominant political, social, male dominated context. Mm. So women well, of color. Uh, when you have like, uh, let's say you said you started a woman of color uh, circle and stuff. So like when you create these spaces, like what's the different feeling you kind of feel and you see with the people around you? I mean, it's one that's more supportive where the idea is to be our strongest, most fully expressed selves. Whereas in other spaces, explicitly or implicitly, the desire is not for, and the goal of those spaces. So in a legal classroom, unless you have a teacher who's very thoughtful about their pedagogy and is thought through equity, diversity, inclusion, the goal is not to have the marginalized student feel their fullest self, it's to teach particular materials. Whereas in these creative spaces, the desire was to, for community and connection and self-expression. Very different. That does, uh, that actually, uh, yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Because, like, yeah, that community and connection, that is, like, something that's kind of missing through our whole, like, society almost, right? So, mm -hmm. like, how you're saying, like, this is kind of, like, like, how the laws kind of pass down. It's actually kind of making a lot of sense to me. So, like, I can even see, like, when you're talking through law, if, uh, if you're just, like, focused on the material and just trying to jam it down. Because I, I kind of know, like in that uh in that kind of space like uh i know how because it gets like hyper competitive which our whole freaking society is right and then like you know people start playing favorites and shit like that and like uh i bet it's kind of a little hard for like a woman of color to get become a favorite in the law class uh but uh no i can see how that like really can it's really, yeah, that can be really tough for somebody to, like, actually, like, grow and, like, that's what you're there to do. You're grow and learn and actually become something, right? And, like, uh, if you're not having that, like, because, yeah, connection is something that actually helps us grow and learn and support all that shit, right? Yeah. I mean, also just having shared experiences. I think a lot of people, marginalized folks in law school had a hard time sharing stories and sharing their thoughts. So the dominant culture was put on us through the textbooks and what we were learning, but also through the classroom environment. So I was gonna say, what I was thinking is, one of, the, one of my profs actually said one time, and I was so confused, I was like, I thought law was supposed to be, I walked in very naive thinking that I was gonna learn about like justice and human rights. And so I went to him after the one class in my first year, we had an hour and a half on critical race theory, and it was the first class that made complete sense to me. So I went up to him afterwards to talk to him and he said, well, what did you expect when you came in here? They're training you to be the high priests of capitalism. And I was like, well, fuck. <laughs> I did yeah. not think applied. I was I applied very naively. Um, the hope is that you can gain a skill set and fight for particular and with particular communities. But the reality is something a little bit different. 
The high priest of capitalism. That's, uh, yeah, that's kind of rough to hear. <laughs> well, it's also a Judeo-Christian framework, our legal system, right? So if you're someone who's raised in a different culture, I think also if you're raised within that, it might be a little bit easier to understand some things. But if you're raised in a different culture and a different language, it becomes increasingly difficult. Yeah, damn. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny <laughs> how you said, uh, like, uh, you're going into law and like they only have like a little bit of classes on like human rights and shit like that it reminds me of like fucking doctors going into like medical school they get one class on nutrition it's like some of this is the most important part <laughs> like uh, maybe we should uh that's like where society is like backed up like more nutrition more fucking human rights why don't we uh start with the foundation first and fucking build outwards you know yeah. I mean, even in the law school, we had a lot of students organizing student-led seminars for all the things that were missing. And so a few folks and I co-organized the critical race theory class. And it was great because it went on for three years and then became a permanent course offering. But there were also additional classes around Aboriginal law because there was only one that was offered. Um, and different law schools also did it differently. So I did my master's at the University of Victoria. And I would say Maybe I would have loved law school or liked it a bit more had I gone and done my JD there, uh, which is your first degree, like your Bachelor of Laws or whatever, so that you can become a lawyer. But they had like an Indigenous law JD, and they had an Indigenous legal theory class, and that was the first time where I was like, oh, this makes sense to me. This is this is how it should be. <laughs> We're talking about the things I want to talk about. So let's go back to your uh, first uh, master's then, your first thesis. Uh can you tell us a little bit about that? Because uh, this is, uh, I th like, uh, we, we talked about this before, so I think this is, like, a cool way to kind of show how, like, law affects, like, people. Like, we don't even notice that, and it's something you kind of, like, uh, actually enlightened me about. So maybe if you can, like, uh, tell us a little bit about your first thesis. Yeah. So I've done a lot of school. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, a lot of it was looking, so I was looking at how law lives in the body. And I was also inspired by a question, Toni Morrison has a book that looks at whiteness in the literary imagination. And when I saw that, I wanted to look at how whiteness lives in the legal imagination as well. And a story that I'm often drawn back to is one where I was on a playground. So I lived in Surrey, which is a more Punjabi immigrant city at the time in the 90s, uh, still is. And then I moved to a whiter neighborhood, North Delta. And this kid was on the playground one day and he turned to me and he was like, Hindu, white kid, says this to me. And I was like, well, you know, like, hey, get your racism, right? I'm not Hindu. Uh, I, you're stealing a joke from me right there. That was one of mine. <laughs> I'm stealing your jokes, Noor. <laughs> but also, why, like, why is this word the word that's entrenched in white kids' minds when they're surrounded mostly by a Sikh community? Like, Surrey at the time was populated mostly by Punjabi Sikh people. And... Later on, I was studying the story of the Kamagatamaru, which is a ship that came to the Burrard Inlet off of the Lower Mainland in BC in 1914. It was filled with mainly Indian migrants. There was also a Japanese steam crew. Uh, the migrants were mostly sick, and then there were a couple of Muslim folks on the boat as well. And the Canadian government was like, nah, you can't land here. Kept them in the inlet for two months, tried to cut off all the food and water supplies. And there were conflicting laws around it. Like, they were... British subjects, so they should have been able to enter Canada, but the Canadian government had made a law, colloquially, it's known as the continuous journey legislation, which said you have to go, if you're going to be able to enter Canada, you have to go straight from India to Vancouver, essentially, without stopping anywhere in between. 
And at the time, ships had to stop in Japan to refuel and resupply and do all of that. So because the ship had stopped, they were like, you can't come in. And there were all these riots and protests, like white Canada protests, and people didn't want more brown folks coming in. And when I was looking through the archives at the documents from when this was happening, the government was referring to the ship as the Hindu problem, H-I-N-D-O-O. There, as far as I know, there weren't any Hindus on the ship. It was Sikhs, Muslims, Japanese steam crew. Um, and it was interesting to me, they couldn't refer to it as the Indian problem, even though they were from India, because the government had called indigenous people the Indian problem in those same documents. And so it occurred to me that this kid, like almost 100 years later, is calling me a Hindu on the playground. And so why is that language still so present? And that's me on my personal journey. We can also see that, you know, the word even Indian in the constitution for indigenous peoples is still used. So in law, that is a term that's still used. And there's so many things that are entrenched in our legal language that get passed down year after year after year that even if these racist laws are repealed, they still live in our bodies and they still carry through in our everyday interactions. And law really is a story that guides us on how to behave with one another, right? So even if you look at your relationship with your landlord or something like that, they are allowed to do certain things and not allowed to do certain things. And the law is the framework that shapes the nature of your relationship. And so how often do we look at, there's a lot going on around race right now and anti-black racism. And so all of us have a lot of different sentiments deeply embedded in us. How much of this comes from the law and how much of it are we actually aware of? And then what are the things that we do to shift and change that? How do we figure out what's actually living in our body? How do we figure out what's actually living deep in our minds? Because sometimes on the surface, you know, people often say, I'm not racist, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. That's not what I think of you. But you can see over time that their actions show you something else. Mm. Like, I went to school with a lot of well-meaning, nice white people. But the ways that certain people treated me was not, and men as well. I would say they're like, the sexism in law school is also a big issue. Uh, but that doesn't mean that these habits aren't buried deep within us, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And not just that, I don't think that makes us bad people, but if we don't take the steps to identify what they are and shift them, especially when we see ourselves acting in oppressive ways or it's been named to us that we're harming somebody, then I'm like, then, then there's a problem. Then that's kind of bad. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what kind of steps can we take, do you think? I mean, I think people need to do a lot more reflection, you know? Like, and I think a lot of it is through storytelling. So for me... Theater and storytelling have often been the way to investigate this. I think the more able we are to communicate what's going on inside of us, the better we can actually interact with one another. But if we aren't aware of what's going on inside, we can't connect to each other in a good way. And so what are the different ways that people can become more fully self-expressed? I think the arts are always a good way to do that. We can do a lot. Lots of people are doing trainings on unconscious bias and things like that. We can become aware. Awareness is obviously a first step and change the education system massively. I mean, when we learned history, that's another thing, right? Like whose story were we learning all that time? It was told by mostly white dudes, cis white dudes. And that was the history that I learned of Canada. And when we did learn about other peoples, it was usually how they were oppressed or harmed or conquered or a side note. Like my parents often said to me, you know, like your education doesn't teach you anything like you don't know anything about india you don't know anything about china and i'm like i grew up throughout my entire up until grade 12 knowing very little about india and china and like south america and africa it, those were choices that i made in university to take those courses and still my knowledge is lacking but i was very well versed in european and 
Canadian Canadian history, a particular form of Canadian and, history. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because like we don't learn about the atrocities and shit like that, or at least we don't learn a, a lot about that. So it's definitely yeah. like a certain flavor of history that we get for sure. And also just reading more diverse authors. I mean, I think if you read and really step into the life of different characters. Not to say that you're gonna understand an entire world, but I think it is an empathy building exercise I, to make aware and knowledgeable. I agree, because like, I, I think uh, like for some reason when I came out of uh, high school, like I always had this like little ants for, um, for like Eastern philosophy. I don't know where it came from, but for some reason I, and that's where I came into meditation. And like, honestly, this was just like stuff that I was just drawn to. But like, I remember when I started reading and started going through it, like I saw the like a completely different way that they look at the world. And like a lot of it is like a complete, like a more of a connection to your body and um, more connection to like everything around you and nature and stuff like that. And um, it definitely started like uh, tearing away at like different uh like parts that are inside me just that were built up in this society so like I, I can definitely see that like you read uh or and listen to different people from different perspectives they'll definitely break down um break down uh different parts inside of you that uh, might be there from the back like that's one cool thing about our uh like technology or culture right now that i'm loving like uh technology has gotten to the point where there's just like we got so much shit online that we can we can literally go and find anything so it's like one of the things now where i'm just like it is really cool we can get such a diversity of information and like i think that is definitely going to like really kind of break down those structures that um that are there like uh like structures that don't help us like i do think there are structures that we have built up as a society that are great like yeah you, you know me, I'm kind of like the a little bit of the optimist. I like kind of be like... I'm not optimistic. <laughs> I have hope. You have hope? I have hope. Well, also, I mean, I, hope is a complicated thing, right? I mean, people are often like riding on hope and then there is no outcome. A lot of systems keep operating in oppressive ways because they give people enough hope to hang on to that system that isn't actually serving them, mm -hmm. but it's giving them enough hope to keep them hanging on to it and not knock it the fuck down. Um, yeah. But you were saying earlier about emotion, like the mind body connection. I think there's actually systems of power have more power when we're disconnected and aren't aware internally. Right. And so for that work to actually be brought to the forefront is important. And, like I remember a lot in law school thinking that emotions can do things that logic cannot. Like emotions are a source of information. Audre Lorde has beautiful work around this. But one of the issues with law is that it is this patriarchal system as well that really discounts emotions and feeling and tries to take all of that out of the context. Because when you take that out, all of a sudden you're in something that's apparently rational and objective and reasonable. And these dichotomies aren't real. And I think that's actually a really pervasive problem that runs throughout our society of thinking that the rational and the emotional are two different things. Mm -hmm. And people will often, I mean, women have been put down for a very long time this way with words like you're hysterical or you're emotional or you're this. And I'm like, emotions are a source of information. People are getting angry because fucked up shit has been happening a long time. And that anger is fuel for transformation. So how do we actually take this information that our body is giving us and create change? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, the mind-body connection, like you said, like 
when we're disconnected, the the systems love that. Like that's how we were saying, like consumerism uh, thrives on us being like fearful and like uh, feeling like shit, and like that's a disconnection. We get depressed. We're disconnected from ourselves. Like uh, that's a big thing, and um, it's kind of funny, like because uh, I, I like I said, I love Eastern philosophy. I love Western philosophy too. Like uh, I, I do see the benefits of both, and like I'm one of those guys. Like we need both wings to fly, kind of thing. Like I know what you're you're probably rolling your eyes at that shit, <laughs> but like. Uh, <laughs> But, like, uh, one cool thing, like, so I do, like, uh, like, I, I've been reading, like, this uh, book lately that's kind of on the whole development of Western um, philosophy and, like, the kind of, like, all the different roads it took. And the funny thing is it kept going back and forth uh, between, like, kind of, uh, kind of, like, archetypes and God and, like, having that part of it, which is, like, very Eastern philosophy and it's very... Um, very connection that's where the mind body connection being connected to nature being connected that was there but then it kept uh then it swings back to the logic reason side and mm -hmm. um both of those sides are good but like um it when it came to the enlightenment it kind of swung to the logic reason side and because science was there and because there's just so many like huge developments the that archetype that god side that nature side all of that kind of like really fell behind the wind so it just like all of a sudden logic rational thinking and all that was held up to like the high esteem which hey like we can't like complain in some senses that like that hasn't given us some because it is really good but um at the other end of it it's true we lost that connection with ourselves because of that and that's why like when you come to the western world you see it's a complete um, you can see in the people too, like they're not completely connected. They're not completely there when you're talking to them. It's very different when you go like traveling. Like I remember traveling to other countries. You like, I remember when I was younger and in my twenties and even seeing like, why, why do these people seem like more like grounded or like, like just comfortable in their bodies while I'm like so anxious and like, so like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah. So I don't know. There has to be a little bit of a balance between both of those, right? I mean, I think there, I mean, there's value in different ways of thinking. And I think for me, sometimes the pervasiveness of Western philosophy and Western legal systems and all these things around the world has actually meant that other ways of being are eradicated in certain ways, or even that people start seeing themselves through the white gaze. And so there is, yeah, there's that, um, what I was actually thinking when you were speaking is about acknowledging our actual human experience subjectively. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the enlightenment and science and logic and even law is supposed to be based on this objectivist science, which it is not, but that is what it tries to be. Um, and that's what the whole learning framework and case law is taught a particular way that is supposed to be an objectivist science. But there's something in it that takes away a human's own experience as their expertise. And so what I'm thinking specifically of, I was sitting in the park the other day with a friend and I was just like, don't you feel more chill? And like, don't you just feel chill in nature? Isn't that real to you? And he was like, yeah, but I need to see the science behind it. I'm like, when you go camping for a few days, do you not feel a difference in your body? <laughs> yes, still wants to see some sort of science behind it. Mm -hmm. I said, like, when you go up to a tree, there is actually an interaction, you're getting if you have anxiety, you're getting more oxygen in your body, which 
settles the anxiety, but there is a relationship between us and nature scientifically. But also your body has knowledge and has been telling you this your entire life. So why is it so difficult to believe? And in the legal system, I find it's similar. I found in law school that if I was speaking about my experience as a racialized woman, it wasn't believed. I was not the expert of my own experience. But if there were a paper or something else that affirmed it, then perhaps it could be true, which makes no sense to me. Because <laughs> the legal system itself is like, hey, if you were at the scene of a crime, then you're, a, you know, you're the witness. But if you heard what happened, that's hearsay. So I'm like, if I'm telling you what's happening for me, how is this not real? How is this not credible? Oh but my God. it's not. And so it's this interesting thing of having an external authority approve and validate what's going on for us. And particularly for racialized people, it's that a white person has to then, even when we look at people who are talking about this really wonderful book on white fragility. It's an important book for white people to read right now. She's a white woman, very smart, very nuanced analysis. What's her name? But it had Robin D'Angelo. Okay. And so it had to be her book as a white woman speaking to white people for them to understand and believe <laughs> the realities of race and racism and how it impacts people. And, it's, and it is work that white folks got to do. So, but it's interesting, right? Like who do we see as an expert or as an authority and where do we actually, and how do we feel validated? Even in the publishing world, I think you and me have had this conversation. Do I need to get my book published versus self-publishing and all these different things? And who are the gatekeepers? Again, they're mostly white folks at this point in time. And there's more presses popping up by independent publishers, but it's still a real problem. Yeah, and like, uh, yeah, yeah, you were saying like the person in nature, like uh, I want to see a scientific paper about nature. You know what I'm saying? Like that's uh, that's one of the fallacies I think of that logic reason. Like if you're going too much on that side, that's it. I, I remember seeing like a scientist once, uh, like he was doing a talk, and he said something about love, and he was just like people say, does love exist? And like he he went down. He's like, yeah, but like all love is is just like uh i think he said i don't know if it was oxytocin but he's like all love is is just your brain producing oxytocin like that's it <laughs> like i just laughed i'm like dude i would love to see your poetry to your wife <laughs> <laughs> like you give me such an oxytocin burst <laughs> that's how much it's, I true. <laughs> it's just like i have a nephew and i joke about that i'm like baby ox short for baby oxytocin yeah. i'm like that's but I think the one thing uh, we can take from our talk a little bit is like uh, and like how you were saying we need to share our stories share our experiences and we need to learn um, to uh, like actually understand our experiences that's like one of the reasons I love f fucking talking about meditation and uh, psychedelics that this, these are things that make you actually understand your experience and try to see it from a way that's disconnected to your mind because like as soon as your mind is labeling your experience then it's just in like it's just labeling through a preconceived notions of like every kind of idea and stuff that's buried in your head that's what's doing the labeling so you want to mm -hmm. kind of be able to be able to disconnect that and just be in your body and be like just having that experience for what it is and like i think that's one direction like i ah, like ended in the kind of a positive note so like that's one <laughs> direction we can kind of be more so i don't think that being critical is a negative thing and i think a lot of people mistake the two i think like critiquing things comes from a place of love if i didn't love 
all that was already here, I wouldn't have any desire to critique it and make it better. Like critique is the first step and then and then the next step is let's imagine something better, right? And so I think a lot of, I was reading a lot about utopia when I was doing my first master's. And so what are the things that actually bar us from imagining a better world or a more utopian world? And a lot of it is the system that we're already in and the limits on our own imaginations, right? So how do we see the limits and label them and acknowledge them? And then how do we break past them and imagine something new? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't think you're... Uh... Yeah, yeah, no, I don't think your uh, being your criticism is bad at all. I fucking love it, actually. Uh, I gotta give you the question before we end this. So, uh, pretty God, yay or nay? Oh, you didn't do the high pitched nay. Oh, you want that? The I want nay. the high pitched nay. Or nay. There we go. <laughs> um, how about goddess? Hmm? That's not in the question. Ooh. My last uh, guest actually gave me a goddess as well. Oh, okay. Uh, I think for me, I mean, there's, I think there's something bigger and outside of our beings. I wouldn't label it God, but I think there's definitely something when you're creating with people, when you're in nature. And I think it's important to have something that we believe exists beyond ourselves, like outside of an individualistic capitalist framework. I shouldn't say we, for me personally. Mm. What other people do is their own business. Um, yeah, and people call it spirituality, but I know there's definitely something. I think when people have a creative spark or they're really inspired to do something or if I'm just sitting out in nature and I feel connected to something greater than me, that would be probably my equivalent of what God is. That's your spiritual. For people who believe God. Yeah. Uh, that's your spiritual, uh, your moment. Yeah, and when, when, I don't know, when you're singing with people and you're creating harmonies, there's just something magical about doing that mm-hmm. and connecting to something that isn't solely within yourself. I love that. <laughs> the scientists yeah, I, would say, I, you're just <laughs> releasing some oxytocin, actually. That's all yeah, it is. Probably. But, like, what is, it, what is the practice that gets me to release oxytocin all on my own or collectively? Like, these are important rituals or ceremonies or practices. And, like, I grew up, so going to temple and I'm like the philosophies that I grew up in I adore I mean the first temple was built with four doors for people from four major religions to enter and come and eat together so there's a philosophy of like justice and equality in Sikhism and we were supposed to like the gurus who are there's ten gurus in Sikhism but they abolish like you get rid of your last name so that's why you see Singh at the end of a lot of men's names and Kaur at the end of a lot of women's names because Singh means lion Kaur means princess But the idea back then, even this is like a couple hundred years ago, is that women shouldn't be taking men's last names because we're not their property in a hetero framework, right? And so to to have that so many years ago and to be raised in that, for me, is still really important. For me, it's not about God, but it's about like philosophy and culture Mm -hmm. and the ways that I connect to people and the ways that I see the world. Because I think religion is often what informs how we see one another and interact with one another. Mm -hmm. Politics and power often corrupt that, unfortunately. So what do you think uh, law is good for then? Or what's the good aspects of law, if that's a better way to ask that question? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think it's also a really complicated question. Like, even if we look at human rights law, that's what I went to law school for, right? I was thinking, oh, I'm going to do human rights and I want to work with vulnerable or marginalized groups. And that's amazing that there are protections now in place, but it also makes me think, when we use the word marginalized, why are people marginal to begin with, right? What are they marginal to? 
or in the margins threatened. And the legal system is designed for a particular set of people and not that's not everybody, right? For like cis, white, heterosexual men. Um, and so even if we look at why people have rights, it's like you look at the civil rights movement in the 1960s, right? Because black people led the civil rights movement, we have a human rights code in Canada. The Bill of Rights came about in 1960. That was to protect people from the federal government making laws that oppress them. So earlier on, I talked about the Kamagata Maru and that law, the continuous journey legislation, which on its face looks neutral. It's like, hey, if you're gonna come from India, you have to come on one continuous journey, which is impossible at the time. In fact, it was actually a racist law. So now there's laws that protect people from the government making policies like that. It's only in place because of the civil rights movement. After that, in the 80s, it became broader. So we have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which means, which protects us from like federal and provincial governments doing that kind of stuff because the earlier one was just the federal government. And then you get the provinces and they're all bringing in human rights codes too so that people have protections from their employers. But you have to look at the grounds that people are protected on as well. It's often like race, sex, sexual orientation, ethnicity, ancestry. We had to bring in additional sets of rights because people weren't seen as fully human to begin with, right? Black folks were brought over as property. So this is a legal system that didn't see us as fully human. And the reason we get to now be fully human is because of the civil rights movement and movements, historical movements that have done that, right? So even if we look at the Employment Standards Act, the reason we have a 40 hour work week, some people, I don't know, for all of us, it's different. But the reason there's limits on what employers can do in this power dynamic, again, is because of unions and movements and all of those people who resisted what the system was initially doing. And so when I think about it, a friend of mine's been doing, um, just making these really complicated Lego sets. So you know when we were kids, we had those Lego sets where you can pick up any piece and you just make something. And now they have these really advanced ones for 250 or 300 bucks where you could make R2-D2 and it's something really specific and you have all the pieces and it's more like a puzzle. So say you make R2-D2 and then you realize you want to add something to it. R2-D2 is done. Everybody knows what R2-D2 looks like. If you're going to add another eyeball or another arm, the structure doesn't necessarily support it. So you have to look at what the inside of that entire Lego structure looks like. So a lot of these rights that we've added on, the legal system wasn't designed to support them. So there's a change that needs to keep on coming afterwards. And also the question of, not the question of, I think it's difficult for me to operate in it because I know this system wasn't designed to see me as fully human. So like women didn't have the right to vote till like 19, around the 1920s. Indigenous people didn't have the right to vote till much later. So this is a legal system that was designed to exclude particular people. And I think there's a difficulty for me in operating in that system all the time. And there's a woman, Mari Matsuda, who talks about double consciousness. So it's operating in these two realms all the time when you're in that system of what it actually is designed to do and then what you're trying to do with it. Um, it's a much more complex term than that, but as a person of color and as a woman being in that space, I do have to hold that. And you do feel that because even if you change something in the last 10 years, that doesn't mean that the entire structure or the inside of it has changed. Um, but I think also with the question of is can law do good things, we also have to think about multiple legal systems, right? So we're here on a particular territory, you know, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, the Métis, the Wendat, most recently the Mississauga of the New Credit Nation. Uh, I think also the Chippewa peoples, like there's a lot of different indigenous peoples who live on this land and who have passed through this land and used this land. So there were covenants, there are covenants and laws that were put in place when Europeans first came here. So we could look at the two row wampum. And I think that's one of the first agreements 
between Europeans and indigenous peoples on Turtle Island. So North America, what people call North America. And if you look at it, it's a belt and it has two rows that go straight side by side. And it's the idea that we run in parallel. So like settlers, Europeans, you know, you ride along here in your ship and we'll ride here along in our canoe. I think it's a birch bark canoe is what one of the lines represents. And the idea is that they're both sets of people maintain their sovereignty and ride side by side without interfering in one another's affairs. And then we're also here on this land that both of us would be on in Toronto, uh, the Dish with One Spoon covenant. So that's another covenant that should be governing our relations with one another and with the land. And the idea behind this, and I'm like, this I can get behind, this makes sense to me, is that there's a dish with one spoon. And so if I take a bite from it, I need to leave enough to pass it to you and pass it to the next person and pass it to the next person. And it's a way that would govern our resources and our use of land and our relationships with one another. And these are agreements that are currently in place that we should be respecting. And so we have to look at the relationship between a colonial legal system that's been placed on top of this that most of us are more familiar with and then also negotiate it with that, right? And so how are we doing that on an everyday? So I think there's power of understanding how law works between people. It's not necessarily what's legislated. Even if we look at, I guess, law in general, like there's case law. Sorry, let me, let me try that again. So the common law, which is in place here, uh, which the British brought over, it's an unwritten law for the most part. It's all in cases. And then the government can legislate things. We all know what legislative law looks like, right? They pass it through the house and then we're like, okay, here's a new law. Even during the emergency measures, a lot of things were passed during that time. And so when we look at the common law and the cases, it's a set of stories that was passed from England. And so that's also had to be adjusted to this context. Um, but when you look at it, I guess the easiest way to look at it is in torts. So like, I might be getting too legal and too specific. Are you familiar with what torts are? No. Yeah. So it's like, basically, you know, when you have to shovel your driveway because if someone slips and falls on it, they can sue you. Mm -hmm. And that's negligence. So negligence is a tort. So part of it is that if you injure me or my property, I have some sort of recourse to damages against you. Okay. But it also has a duty of care for one another. So I have a duty to care for my neighbor by, you know, or my postal worker by shoveling the driveway so, so that they don't slip and fall. And so when you look at torts historically, they're designed around keeping, again, white cis men safe. So there's a tort for defamation. If you damage my reputation, that could harm my access to you know, work and money and livelihood and all that kind of stuff. And there's also torts against assault. So if you, you know, if you hit me and I can't do certain things, again, I would get damages, but there weren't torts for, and there isn't a tort for sexual assault. There isn't a tort for racial discrimination. And so different systems had to be created in order for people to have some recourse. So there's civil liability and there's different avenues that were created afterwards, but it's just this way of, when you think about the legal system, it was designed for a particular set of people in mind. Mm -hmm. And so, is it good, I think is a really big question. I don't like to think in binaries of good and bad, but there's more, there's progress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how do you think uh, that progress like uh, gets made? Like what's these steps? Just because like, I, I do like how when you were talking about the indigenous, um, like their systems they have and like even like that spoon and the bowl one I love that like it's kind of like uh something that's like looking out for all of us at once and making sure everyone has a little bit kind of thing which is something especially when it comes to like our our environmental destruction that we're kind of doing like this is something that's like desperately needed how do you make that kind of transition because like especially like a lot of us who don't know much about the law 
you know, we try to, like, fight for these kind of causes, but, you know, like, we might be completely over our heads. Like, how do you see a Western colonial kind of framework you're talking about? How do you see this transition coming? Like, um, yeah, is I mean, it just I think adding all those extra laws, like you were saying, like to the Lego R2-D2? <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I think some things need to be dismantled and recreated, right? And so even when I think of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, for example, I was telling you about there's protected grounds for sex and race and ancestry, so you can't discriminate me against, discriminate against me on the basis of those grounds. The government can't. Um, sexual orientation wasn't originally in there, and it's still not in the written text. But there was a case at a certain point in time which meant that the judges said it should be in there, so we're going to read it in. So if anybody reads it, well, the word is not actually written there, but it is there because a case has introduced it, right? So there's an adjustment made through case law to the legislative law because actually changing the charter would be so complicated because of the consensus needed on this wider scale. Um, but more to your question, I think it's movements. I think it really comes down to people and movements, right? So even all the protests that we've had recently, I used to think about it this way when I was in law school because I had been doing youth work and more activism and organizing prior to going in and tried to do it within as well. But if I'm a lawyer sitting on the inside of the courtroom and there's a really big case and there's nine judges or however many judges sitting up there, what's going to influence them in addition to the arguments here? Like if there were a mass of people pushing on the outside of the courthouse walls, that makes a difference, right? So it's, I think there is a relationship between what's happening in society and how the law is changing. So when we have these massive movements and people get behind them, the law has to change, it can't stay the same. And so even when you look at the civil rights movement, the reason we have all these human rights codes and even uh, like employment protections is because of those movements, because people said we need to be seen as equal or we need protection when we're not seen as equal and when we're treated poorly and badly. Mm. Um, I don't know if it happens with them. I'm like, you need the little catalyst. And I used to think about that. You need the catalyst inside of the courtroom, the person who's going to do 10, 20 years of litigation. And then you need a movement on the outside of people who are saying we want change and we need change. Yeah, well, uh, when you put it that way, I actually kind of feel pretty optimistic about it because I think both of those things are sort of in place. Like like you said, it's like it takes time and it takes that movement. But um, yeah, like uh, that does seem like kind of optimistic in a sense. Like, I don't know, like it's uh, it is one of those uh well, I guess we'll have to wait and see, but... Yeah, I mean, when you ask the question, too, there's this interesting... I can't remember what country it is. It might be Bolivia or Ecuador. It was a South American country where the Earth actually has a constitutional right. So usually when you go take a case to court, you have to have standings. So you have to be a person and you have to be with him. You have to be able to use this particular law. Whereas in those places, the Earth has standing. So I could make a claim on behalf of the Earth to say that I am being destroyed, like the earth is being destroyed. Oh, so that the earth is actually constitutionally protected in the same way that we have, you know, a certain section of the charter to protect people. And I think once we can start seeing, I think there needs to be a shift in our relationship with the land and the earth. If we're looking at ecological stewardship and climate change and actually shifting 100%. things. West, like, yeah, because our legal system looks at land as property. And that's another thing that's problematic when I think about law. I mean, the entire, so I grew up, I said on the West Coast, right? And that's unceded Coast Salish territory. And unceded literally means it's stolen land because even under 
British law, I think it's a 1763 royal proclamation or something like that. They say that in order to take land from other people, it has to be done through session. So you sign a treaty and you cede that land or through conquest. And in BC, neither of those things happen. So that is even under our current legal system, Canadian legal system, it's still stolen land. A lot of it is unceded. And so we're living in these multiple worlds all at once. And then if you buy property on top of that as a settler or as a migrant settler, you know, it's, it's a complex relationship that we're not forced to think about. Mm. And like you look at property taxes and I'm like, how much of the property taxes are going to cops? And then how much is actually going to the people whose land, like this, you know, indigenous folks, this land, who this land has been stolen from yeah. and why cops are getting all this money, but I am sitting here on stolen land and those people aren't getting it. Um, you know, even if you're looking at a rent system, it's it's really complicated to think about. And so I think when I'm in law, it's difficult to hold all of that all at once. And I have a deep admiration for people who can, who are in that struggle to be fighting for rights. Um, but when I look at storytelling, I think that my my power or my purpose fits more broadly here. You know, you can mobilize the masses through stories. You can make, help us see ourselves differently in relation to the world through story. Um, let's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, um, this is going to be my longest episode easily now. <laughs> uh, do you have anything you want to promote, Preeti? Um, I mean, you can find me on Twitter under Preeti Dollywell, and it's at Jadoberry, J-A-D-O-O-B-E-R-R-Y. Other than that, I do writing coaching and some equity, diversity, inclusion work, but I think... Mostly, I just like people to think about the stories that they're telling and how we tell them, right? I think there's a responsibility in storytelling and in the stories that we consume and that we read and that we take in. So, you know, read diverse authors, push yourself out of your zone. And also, if you're telling a story, think about, is this my story to tell? Hey, everybody, that was this week's episode. Thank you so much uh, for listening. I appreciate the support. The best way you can uh, support this podcast is by going on to Apple or iTunes and rating this podcast. Um, If you give it a good rating and leave a nice comment, honestly, that's the best way to do it. Uh, Please check me out on Instagram or uh, YouTube under Newer Kidwife. I'm constantly going to be sharing clips of this podcast and also uh, telling you when new episodes are out and sharing a little bit of my comedy so thank you so much uh, and uh tune in to another episode next time on god yay or nay